Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. In today's episode, we are very fortunate in that we have the editor of Canadian Architect, Elsa Lamb. Elsa, at the risk of butchering your background, would you care to introduce yourself, please? Uh, sure. Uh, so my name is Elsa Lamb. I'm editor of Canadian Architect magazine. And, um, and I guess you want to know how I came to that position a bit. Wow, way to jump the questions. But yes, yes, it is, Elsa. Yes, I want to know how you got to where you are. Okay, so uh, I studied at the University of Waterloo. I studied architecture, um, uh, like you did, um, uh, Vincent, but I guess, I mean, you, you're like 100 years old, so I mean. Yes, so yes, I know, thank day. you. I, I remember marking uh, midterms for you way back in the day. God damn, I'm old. Okay, sorry, go on. So, uh, so I studied architectural design there, um, and then I did a master's at McGill in architectural history and theory, and I did a PhD in architectural history and theory at Columbia University. So somewhere in the co-op uh, process, I kind of figured out that I didn't want to be an architect, but I was really interested in architecture still, and I wanted to figure out um, how I could use that background to, uh, to explore different fields. Uh, so I ended up going into this kind of architectural history uh, vein of things. Um, I was writing for some magazines uh, on a freelance basis when I was in grad school. And, uh, and then I graduated and I uh, worked for the Canadian Centre for Architecture for a year. Um, and, and then this opportunity came up for, with Canadian Architect. Okay, so I'm going to break that down a little bit because that was uh, like the 90 second uh, kind of Tinder life story of, of Elsa. But I think we've got to break down a couple of things. So you went and studied architecture. You, you did some work terms while in a co-op program, which really expanded your horizons, not only in terms of what you wanted to do, but also more importantly, what not to study or what, what you didn't want to deal with. But then can you explain a little bit about I think some students might be interested in writing. Um, and uh, can you explain a little bit on how you got your feet wet when it came to writing when you were in grad school? Sure. Uh, well, uh, after I did my master's, uh, I, it was a 12-month kind of master's program at McGill that I did in history and theory. And, um, and I, was applying, uh, I was applying for PhD programs. So I was basically taking a year to apply for PhD programs. Um, I was still around Montreal at the time, and I'd always been curious about architectural uh, writing. I really liked uh, kind of the idea of it, but I'd never really done any of it. Um, so I thought, well, you know, I've, I've got the time. Um, applying for grad schools isn't going to take like my entire, uh, you know, my entire year. Uh, so why don't I make a go at freelance writing and see where it goes? So I basically started just a cold you know, cold pitching uh, magazines and newspapers and, uh, and got my first couple of articles under my belt and, uh, and started to get the swing of it that way. So uh, just, just to put things in perspective, though, because there, at least in the Canadian marketplace, um, there's only so many outlets for architectural writing. I mean, yes, there's the local newspapers. I mean, we see Lisa Vershawns, the Chris Humes and all that. And then, of course, there's Canadian Architect Magazine. Um, I, I mean, as, as an emerging writer how, how did how did you really like just just cold call and just straight up like you know in the trenches brute force application or did you target specific zones or specific types of buildings specific you know issues 
Yeah, I mean, I basically um, targeted things that I was interested in um, with the knowledge that I would, uh, I would not be making much money uh, in this process. Um, so I, uh, I mean, I was interested in Canadian architect, obviously. Uh, so I emailed the editor at the time and uh, wrote, I'm sure, a very enthusiastic email saying that I was in Montreal and I was interested in writing. Um, and, uh, and then Ian Chodikoff. So Ian uh, happened to be coming to McGill to do some crits and uh, wanted to meet some of the people that were writing uh, interested in architecture, kind of wanted to get a sense of the scene around Montreal. So I ended up getting invited along for, for drinks one day after crits. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and he got to, you know, he invited me to, to write an article uh, for Canadian Architect. Uh, so I had no idea what to write about. And he said, well, why don't you write about kitsch and Quebec architecture? Nice. Uh, so, uh, so I took that on and I gave it a go. And, you know, it's a 700 word article. And I'm sure that I put in like 100 hours of work on it easily. <laughs> um, but, you know, but it was my first article. And I really, really cared about it. So, uh, so I put all that work in and I'm really happy with how it came out. And then at some point, though, uh, it's not like you drugged his drink or you did something, but how did you end up taking his job? Huh. Well, you know, I ended up uh, writing for Canadian Architect on and off for, for over a decade. Um, just, you know, one or two articles a year. Um, I wrote when I was in New York about uh, Canadian architects that were working in New York, or if I happened to be traveling somewhere, like I went to Yellowknife for an architectural history conference. Mm -hmm. um, so I would write Ian saying like, hey, I'm in Yellowknife. And he'd be like, well, is there anything interesting going up there architecture wise? And I'd write back, well, I've seen this really interesting condo that, you know, looks kind of cool. I went to the construction site. I chatted with, uh, you know, some of the framing guys there. And it looks like it's shaping up to be interesting. Uh, so he'd say, great, well, write me an article about it while it's done. Uh, so, you know, so we just kind of kept in touch. And, um, and I became a regular contributor in terms of just uh, contributing uh, a few articles here and there over a long period of time. Uh, so it gave me a really good sense of what Canadian Architect was about. Um, and then when the job came up, I was really well positioned to, uh, to apply for it. So then you applied and is it like a gauntlet or a baptism? Like how do you like, it's like picking the Pope? Like do you just interview with like a regular job or do you have to like present a kind of portfolio of all the stuff that you've written? Like what, 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 what would it take it to become an editor of an architecture magazine? I mean, I think, frankly, I mean, it's, uh, by that time I had written quite a bit. So I think mm -hmm. that, that is quite helpful. Um, but, uh, but it was just an interview, like a regular job. Ian was one of the, you know, on the interview committee. So, uh, so that was, uh, so he knew me and he knew that my kind of writing. Um, and, um, and that was it. But I mean, you know, it takes a bit of uh, luck too, because like you said, there's not so many of these jobs around. I mean, mm -hmm full-time architecture editors or writers in the country there's maybe like there's a handful of us like I could yeah. I can count them on one hand basically yeah exactly exactly so I think we're gonna get back to the publication itself in a, in a minute but I think that given the audience we've got I mean we know that in architecture school the vast majority of time and effort and suffering is in studio and we often have the courses, like there's a hierarchy of courses. We know that, yes, it's good to know your building construction, but the, the, the next one would be history theory. And then of course, way down to the bottom is like maybe structures, right? So, I mean, when push comes to shove, history theory, those types of courses kind of get pushed by the wayside. Tell me, why is it important to study history and theory in architecture? History and theory are really important because 
it's all about the ideas behind architecture, the kind of why of, you know, of what you're doing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fine to, uh, to, you know, make like to look at Arch Daily and to kind of uh, cherry pick like something that looks neat here and something that, uh, that it kind of has interesting colors over there and collage them into your, uh, your building. Uh, but history and theory um, is about figuring out like why these things were actually done, why these decisions are made and what they say about uh, the culture or the, you know, the history of a particular place, uh, the philosophy of building, uh, the process of building. And, and in the end, I mean, uh, you need that to, to understand why it is that you're doing what you're doing. So I think that that's a really good point because a lot of students sometimes are fascinated by the kind of visually stunning precedents and just kind of find a way to Frankenstein and fold it into their own work. But, you know, coming back to that core idea, you may have noticed um, in the last, you know, a uh, few decades, a lot of different themes have emerged. I mean, it's not to say that architecture has been very much uh, a linear growth uh, model, right? But you know, now with the global connectivity with the internet, with all these issues from economics to environmental to social issues all coming into play more and more in the forefront of architecture, how do you keep up with that as, as, as a person studying architecture? Like not as the editor of Canadian Architect, but how does one keep on top of these things without going straight to Arc Daily and, and these kinds of, you know, easy access points? Um, you know, I'm a fan of, of longer read kind of things. Um, I, I'm the kind of person, I don't read the daily newspaper, but I read the New Yorker because I kind of like to uh, understand, you know, what people have been thinking about. Um, and, you know, and often it's, it's, it's news that happened a month ago um, mm -hmm. and, or two months ago or three months ago, uh, but then it's really digested in uh, kind of longer format. Uh, so I tend to gravitate more towards that in, uh, in our architectural uh, reading as well. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, it's, it's a different kind of, and I keep an eye on, on the headlines as well, but mm -hmm. if I'm going to invest time in reading something, uh, then it's often kind of a longer in-depth piece. Hmm. So then that brings me back to the hard copy publication of things. I mean, yes, for those of you guys interested, uh, basically, Elsa, do you want to plug the Canadian Arctic Magazine, the free uh, editions? Sure. Yeah. I mean, digital uh, Canadian Architect has a, a free digital edition. So if you go onto uh, the Canadian Architect website, you can sign up for it and it'll give you uh, a free kind of PDF copy of Canadian Architect every month. Um, there's also access to all of our back issues for free and, um, and signing up for the free digital edition also uh, gives you a, a, a newsletter every week, uh, which, uh, which is a really good tool for uh, keeping on top of what's happening in architecture in Canada. I mean, even among professional architects when I meet people uh, that have uh, that keep on top of the the uh, the e-newsletter even just like scanning the headlines uh, they're mm -hmm. so in the know um, so it's kind of like the secret weapon in a way that's out in the open uh, but that I, I, I think more people could actually benefit from yeah, so I, I think that that's one thing. I mean, I, I will be the first to admit that I do enjoy looking through it. And maybe it's because I'm old and I like looking at all the students that I've taught and I can see them. They're the architect of record or they're the ones profiled or what have you. But it's also, I think the the magazine is also informative. I mean, I, I often direct people uh, with the issue that you had a few months ago uh, with Mass Timber, for example. A lot of students are interested in that, but there's no definitive textbook that's really out. And to have that kind of... Uh, easy access points with the, the Canadian Arctic Museum, that was very helpful. 
I also find that looking at the just general interest, like I was talking to you earlier about the, the back page article, and I will get you that twin story eventually, I promise. Um, but the, like just seeing all these stories coming together in the magazine is really great. But my question would be then, that's a hard copy document. So we often are guilty, and, and I'll be the first to admit it, my students certainly are, um, of just flipping through magazines and looking at the glossy pictures, right? So as the editor of Canadian Architect, who has some level of you know, editorial control over things, how would you recommend that a student read Canadian Architect or architecture magazines in general? Well, I mean, you know, it's great to flip through and look at the pictures. I mean, that's a kind of a first reading of, of anything. Um, and, you know, it helps to identify what you're interested in. You know, one of the tips that I got when I was studying architecture that I really enjoyed and found very helpful um, was, you know, was about uh, redrawing plans. So if you're looking at an architecture magazine uh, and you find a building that, that you're interested in and it's kind of architecture magazine that you know, that publishes, uh, you know, plans or architectural drawings, which, which good ones should, um, mm -hmm. then, you know, take a few minutes, uh, to take out your sketchbook and, uh, and redraw the plan of the building or the section of that is the key document, whatever the kind of key um, image for that uh, or drawing for that building is, try redrawing it because that is something that really gives you a sense of how the building is put together, how it works, how the spaces relate to each other. And, um, and if you just, even if you look at it carefully, you won't see it in the same way as if you take out a pencil and draw it again. Um, but, but just very quickly, my question would be just, how um, are the drawings kind of consolidated to have the same aesthetic from all these different firms in the magazine? Yeah, we do have a template that we uh, that we give uh, like some guidelines about line weights and um, and uh, you know what we, we ask for drawings as vector drawings, for instance. Um, but then we do a little bit of fine tuning on our end as well um, in terms of cleaning things up um, and um, and making sure that the line weights like hatch. You know, hash patterns are kind of are legible um, if they are present, um, and uh, and just kind of getting them all to look consistent. Hmm. So then that's the drawing side of things. And that's really useful because a lot of students uh, could stand to take a look at how they do, uh, how you guys uh, do drawings in Canadian Architect Magazine. But then let's talk about the text itself, because I'll be honest with you, I'm notorious for looking at the photos first and then just jumping into the text if the project interests me. But I find that the text is fairly concise and, you know, well written. Um, you've taught actually a writing course in Ryerson recently. So what would you say is, is a good kind of major tip for how architecture students should improve their writing? Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's no secret to writing. I mean, it's, what? you know, read a lot and you, you write a lot and that's kind of how you get better at writing. Uh, but, you know, something that we did in, uh, in the course that I, I taught this semester uh, was uh, the final assignment was to write a Wikipedia page for an architecture firm or an architect in Canada. And uh, the process for it was to start uh, basically by looking at other Wikipedia pages and uh, kind of reverse engineering in a way. So, you know, going through other Wikipedia pages, trying to figure out how they're put together, uh, what the different kinds of sections are, what the style of writing is, um, you know, what the, uh, the use of references is like and so on. And, uh, and kind of building backwards from that to try to figure out how to put your, your own page together. Um, and I think that's something that's really useful um, in lots of fields, uh, both in, in terms of writing, like if you want to be writing 
I don't know, like a manifesto, then the first thing you should do is, you know, read a bunch of other manifestos and try to figure out how they're put together. Um, and then that gives you a model for writing your own. Um, or, you know, or a more kind of longer academic piece of architectural uh, theory. Then, you know, again, start from other pieces of architectural theory that are interesting to you and uh, try to figure out how they're put together. Um, you know, or, you know, write, writing a web page with short texts, you know, same thing, find some web pages that you like. So you don't have to start from scratch, you know, you can start from, uh, from other things that you like and then uh, use those as models. I mean, same as architectural design, right? When I talk about redrawing plans, um, the idea is that if you're designing a, a school in your studio assignment, then uh, then that kind of precedent research step of, uh, of your studio assignment is not just to go and find like a bunch of pictures from Google images of schools, uh, but you know, if you really look at the plans for those buildings and understand how they're put together, how they're organized, then that can give you a really, a lot of really interesting tools uh, for how you might plan your own design. Wow, you, you, it's, it's spoken like you're a closet prof or something. Man, you just, you just went all out and talked about how to learn from the magazine, so that's pretty impressive. And I, and I think I do want to echo that, that the last thing you want to do is just simply drop on precedent as like a Pinterest kind of interest board where it's like, this is the kind of mood I want to have and just kind of cobble things together. I, I do think that, you know, whether it's tracing over drawings or just, you know, rewriting things and reverse engineering things, I think that's a really good exercise. But I think since we're talking about all this education discussion, um, I think now that, you know, in hindsight, you've seen a lot of architecture from across the country and you've been to different schools, you've done reviews at different schools. You know, now that you're a little bit removed from the academic realm, um, having done it, um, what would you say is something you would have said uh, if you could reteach things or if you could change the way you were taught um, architecture, what would, you, what would you say needs to be done in education? Um, you know, I think education has changed a lot since I was a student, um, but you know, I feel like often I was told in design studios that design is something that can't be taught, you know, that's just like trial and error, you know, you get, you kind of do your best and then you get like opinions from different profs who tell you to change this or change that and try to change it and, you know, mm -hmm. you can't satisfy anyone in it and it ended up being a pretty frustrating process. <laughs> and I think that, you know, actually the, you know, the lesson, in retrospect, I think it wasn't that design can't be taught. I think it's just that the people that were teaching me didn't necessarily know how to teach design. Oh, um, oh, wait, wait. Okay. So just for the record, I in no way asked uh, Elsa to say stuff like that. Um, I, I, I'm not going to point fingers, but Elsa, that was you, not me. Okay. Just for the record, that wasn't me. Okay. Continue, please. Yeah, and I mean, and I shouldn't say this is of all profs, but you know, but I think that a lot of, you know, sometimes it happens that profs are, you know, very good designers in themselves. Um, but it's like a cycle, right? It's, it could be that they were never really taught design. They also learned through trial and error. So they kind of, you know, they, they kind of end up teaching that way. And, you know, and maybe it's a university thing too, that a lot of people that are hired to teach at universities are, are doing it because, you know, they're good at something. Uh, not, and, you know, they're good at, being an architect or they're good at you know um you know designing structures or writing uh, but they're not necessarily you know good at they're not necessarily taught how to teach hmm. maybe, what i'm saying 
Um, so, you know, so I think that, I mean, it's something, I mean, I, and I've been working really hard and kind of teaching this right architectural writing course to be like, okay, I know how to write, but then how do I teach how to write? And it's like a whole other, other skill set. And it's been a really interesting learning experience um, for me and hopefully for my students as well. Um, but I feel like I've been like searching for tools on, you know, how to teach writing and, you know, and, and, and how to um, lay down some, some ground rules for writing. Uh, so it's like, so you have a kind of scaffold to build off of. And then, you know, once you have that kind of a basic mastery of, of you know, a certain kind of set of tools for writing, uh, then you can, you can have the confidence to go and do your own thing. Uh, but, you know, you don't kind of just like go off and do your own thing right from the very beginning um, because, you know, it's not necessarily the most kind of productive uh, way to learn something. You know, it's funny. You just basically, first off, outed all the profs that, that we all know, including myself. So kids, now you know how I got my job as a prof, uh, because apparently it's not about, um, see, in, in other places like high school, it, you know, those that cannot basically teach, right? But, uh, you know, based on what you just said, Elsa, those that really can, when they are forced to teach, they might not actually be capable of teaching. So, um, and then we're all learning how to teach. So I think you raise a really good point about that. Um, but I just, I just want to be clear. I didn't out anybody and it was Elsa Lamb, editor of Canadian Architect, that said that. Just, oh, just thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, um, I, you know, while we're talking about the educational capacity here, I think, um, you know, we have now a, a soapbox for you to go and teach architecture a little bit right now. If you could cite a sample of architecture, what is the worst? Because we always like to learn from train wrecks than watching like, you know, good behavior videos, right? So, can you identify a really good train wreck of architecture for the audience here and tell us what we should learn from it? Well, okay. I know that you want something specific here, but I'm going to, uh, to kind of cop out a little bit and give uh, you a generality. But I think that we can learn from the suburbs. And, you know, I'm thinking about um, Michael Serkin, actually, this architectural theorist and historian recently passed away. And he put out a list of, you know, 250 things that every architect should know, which is a really great list. You should Google it if you, uh, if you have a bored moment there. Um, but uh, one of the things was, um, you know, that architecture, ar architects should know what people like about the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really interesting question, right? Because as architects, we love to say how, you know, how terrible the suburbs are and how everything should be about urban density and how, you know, the suburbs are all kitsch and why is it that, uh, like, that, you know, anybody that's like, has any kind of sense of culture would never live in the suburbs, right? Right. We also have to take the time to, to, to say, well, listen, like, you know, millions of people in Canada live in the suburbs. Why is it? And like, not all of them are, you know, are horrible, you know, uneducated, um, uncultured people. There's obviously something that actually draws people to these areas. So what is it? So I think that, you know, so we can learn from the things that we actually dislike in this way. And I think that goes not just for the suburbs. I think that's a very good teaching moment there where it's like, you know, a lot of people say, especially coming out of high school, we have a lot of students that come in first year and say, well, my style is blobs, or my style is sharp things, or my style is like, you know, boxy things. And I think it's really incumbent on educators to inform students that, sure, you can have your own uh, preferences, but make sure you kind of have a good perspective and a good outlook on on everything else, just so that you can speak to why certain things do or don't work for you, right? Um, so, so I think you're, you're absolutely right on, on that front, but I was really hoping you were going to, you know, roast some architect or 
maybe not a Canadian architect, but some architectural, architectural work. Come on, nothing around the world. Like, I mean, there are people on the other side of the world that aren't going to be listening. So you might as well just call out some dude in China or something. Come on. I don't know. I don't have anything. Uh, you know, I'm a pretty positive person, Vincent. I don't so. know what's wrong with you. I thought I thought I taught you better. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. Why don't you tell us? Why don't you tell me what what uh, what piece of architecture you would choose? I hate all architecture equally, and you know that. I don't what? discriminate. Um, and and I mean, I can give you some samples of student projects, but again, uh, a uh, that's apparently a disclosure issue. And secondly, I got too many people that I know and. Uh, in in the country to kind of get me in trouble, man. I already got enough. I got a long, long line of people that want to kill me already. So <laughs> I don't need any more, man. You though, I was expecting some real sage words from you. Just to be like, hey kids, this project, mm -mm. learn from them, learn but from them. Let me tell you about, okay, I'll tell you about one project that a, a fellow classmate did, you know, made in, in architecture school. I won't, uh, I won't use their name. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember uh, this classmate kind of, you know, it was interesting because he kind of like drove everybody crazy, right? And, uh, and he made his final model one semester out of toothpicks and marshmallows. No, no. <laughs> what year? Yeah. What year? What year though? Well, it must have been second or third year, I think. Oh, and, that's brutal, man. I don't like, and did they, did they get away with it or did they get called out? I don't remember. I don't remember what happened, but I just remember just like having this, like, this, like, you know, what is going on here? And, you know, I, I and I, I guess at some point, you know, you, it, it's kind of interesting though, like having somebody like that in the class though, that is just, you know, like taking things from a completely different place uh, that, uh, that 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 nobody else would think to to have the audacity to no that's called desperation that's like oh last minute thing and it's like I'm in the cafeteria or like I'm in my dorm going <laughs> oh man it's it's tough call like I mean right now when we're in the throes of the pandemic I'm pretty sure people are trying to figure out how to do their models right now and they're like hmm lasagna that could be a good floor slab right I mean <laughs> you know that's what happens uh, in any event lasagna uh, curtains I hope that you're ready for those models Vincent sorry what. Lasagna and egg cartons. Egg cartons are very good structurally, you know? Uh, no, because unfortunately, the, remember, we're old, at least I'm old, so uh, we don't accept any physical stuff from the kids anymore because uh, they are the carriers and I am the one that's going to die. So uh, kids, keep your models to yourselves. In any event, um, Elsa, I want to first off say thanks. I know that it's super busy for you. Um, take guys, take a look. She just came out with the, uh, well, how long, like how many days ago did it come out? Just the April issue? On April 1st. April 1st. So it just came out last week. Um, and it actually does cover, not surprisingly, a whole bunch of things pertaining to uh, the pandemic that's going on right now. Um, you know, it's, believe it or not, students, uh, this too will pass. You will get through your deadlines. And uh, when you are still in the pandemic mode uh, and quarantined, what better way to catch up and learn on architecture and sound smart when you come back to school than to just uh, go through some Canadian architect magazines. Uh, they're not really too hard. I also make sure that even a guy like me can read them. And better yet, they got nice pictures so I can learn and talk about the right things that makes me look smart. So I want to say thank you to you as well, Elsa. Thanks, Vincent. I appreciate uh, the chance to, to talk on your podcast. No problem. Thank you very much. Take care.